Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce to you Mark Boucher. But anyway, uh, let's see. Let me let me take a little survey of the audience, which I usually like to do. And if you have questions, always feel free to ask them. Um, how many people have used my column to actually trade stocks? Okay. And uh, how many people have even read my column before? Okay. All right. And here's another one. How many people actually understand everything in my column? <laughs> uh, uh, how many understand most of what's in the column? Okay, so I think uh, we're going to go over it in even more detail. Some of you I see again, and so I'm going to go over some different type of things than we went over yesterday in a little more detail in the uh, selection and um, go over some of the richness that you have from some of the indicators that we have on a daily basis um, a little bit more and uh, move through liquidity a little faster. And uh, if you have any questions that we haven't covered, anything, feel free always to uh, raise your hand. We'll be skipping around a lot, which will be a lot of fun for you. <laughs> All right. We're going to flow from you. Uh, yeah. That's a good idea of how to do it. Okay. Um, I will skip forward to the money management page real quick. Um, how many people here have had a drawdown of over 20% in their portfolio in the last four years? Okay, so that's a lot of you. Um, if that's true, I think you should maybe put a corner down on this section of money management because um, if you follow these money management rules, which are your sort of your first defense, and you're trading a methodology that has some reasonable reliability and decent risk reward ratio, you probably shouldn't be having a drawdown that large. Uh, that's a drawdown. I, generally, my, most of my clients from my, my broadly diversified fund, which is Midas Fund, which is the one that Eddie and everybody discusses a track record of because it's been around the longest. Um, if I had a 15% drawdown, I would probably lose about 80% of my clients. Um, and most of the other 20% is my own money. So, um, that. The, the, uh, I, you want to try to set a limit on how much you can afford to lose in a worst case scenario and, and use that as a defensive stronghold. And so some of this money management stuff will, will help you do that. The first rule is to uh, limit your risk on each position to somewhere between 1% and 2%. And by risk, that means the distance between your entry and your open protective stop. So whenever I use the word risk from now on, a lot of times I say risk and people think allocation. If you're putting 10% of your money in a stock, that's your risk. No, what I define risk as is the distance between your entry price and your open protective stop. If you buy a stock at 10 and you put an open protective stop at 8, your risk is 2 points. That two points can never be more than 2% of your capital. So if you have $100,000, you can only buy 1,000 shares of that stock. Because 1,000 shares times two points is $2,000. That's 2% 2 of your portfolio. In this environment, I would not be risking 2%. In an environment where you can get very aggressive, yeah? If you put a stop there, possibly get so 
it's possible that you get filled lower, but what you at least make your theoretical risk at that level. Definitely that's true. Um, so, so basically, that you want to make sure in this environment, I would probably not risk more than 1% on any one trade. Now, I'm going to show you how you can, and that seems like it's awfully stingy, I know to a lot of you, but I, I can show you how that you can use creeping commitment and some other methods to increase your exposure to an area, to uh, a stock, or to a particular sector, and yet keep rotating that 1% of original capital so that your real risk to capital really doesn't increase while you increase your exposure. Uh, never allocate more than 25% to any one sector. So uh, right now, banking and insurance is a hot industry in the long side, and telecommunications uh, is one of the hot industries, and internet are two of the hot industries on the short side. Um, and we'll show you how to see that in the list that we do in trading markets every day. Yes? No, that's usually like uh, group, right, right. So we have, we have three things that we look at. We look at the industry we look at, or sector, we look at the, the group and then the subgroup, and we sort of graph each day our top relative strength earnings per share, new highs, how many fall into each group and subgroup and industry, and the same thing for new lows. And that gives you an idea of what the leading, weakest, and strongest groups are. And I would spend most of my time focusing on the groups and subgroups. How, how do I Technology is probably too big. I would probably be a group. Don't want to have too much into a group. And I would probably look at an industry like that. I would probably double these things. And you certainly wouldn't want to have more than half in a particular industry like that. Um, it's, I, also, I like, uh, we're going to discuss mostly long, short stuff that I do in my column and that I try to teach in trading markets, but I, I always like for people to understand that that makes up a part of my portfolio, and I, su I suggest that people diversify among at least three different countries and never have all your, all your cookies in one jar, so to speak. Okay. Um, I always try to diversify among asset types so that, so that stock, no matter how good your strategy is in stocks or in global stocks or in global bonds or whatever a asset class you're in, you never want to have all of your assets in any one and you want to diversify among at least three. Right now, I, th I think in our broadly diversified portfolio, our strongest allocations are to commodity uh, funds, managers, and strategies. Um, long short systems and arbitrage, for example. Those are three quite heavily uncorrelated instruments. Um, and yet that fund is up over 30% year to date. Um, use creeping commitment. This is one of the most important principles for having substantial gains and still keeping your risk low. Creeping commitment. So underline this one because it's, it's critically important to your trading. I think it's, it's one of the most important principles in trading, and it's very infrequently discussed. Creeping commitment, let's use an example. Let's say we bought that stock at 10, and you, use, and you had an original open protective stop at 8, and you could buy 1,000 shares of it with a $100,000 portfolio. 
because your risk was two points. Now it moves up to 15 and it consolidates for a long time between 15 and 13 and it breaks out again and has all the characteristics that we want to buy again. Well, because we can now move our protective stop on all our positions up to 13, and that's higher than our original entry price, we can add to that stock without increasing the risk to our original capital. So we're gonna take another one or 2% risk on the next set of shares, but our original capital now is protected on the first set. And actually our profit on that first set is higher than the next uh, amount of risk that we're taking. So you're sort of, using the house's money to increase your risk, but never increasing your risk to original capital. And if that stock were to ride, go up to 12 and play around between 10 and 12 and break out above 12, I wouldn't be adding to it because my protective stop would be below 10, which is below my original entry price. Everybody understand that? That's how you can take an industry or a stock and start out small let it prove itself and as it proves itself build a big position in it without increasing your risk to original capital and that's what you need to do to build substantial gains on a consistent basis and keep your risk low on a consistent basis so it's one of the most important principles here yes Depends on the risk. So you're just, again, same allocation rule. You're allocating by risk. So sometimes, I, rarely do I add more shares on the second or third pyramid than I do on the first one. So I would basically take the first number and that would be your maximum, but I would look at the risk. And I, if, the, if, you're, if you're trading between 15 and 13, you got two points risk again. So again, you're thinking about 1,000 shares. Very rarely do I do that. If, if a stock breaks out and it's had a long trading range of four weeks or more and it breaks to a new high, I'm definitely going to be moving my protective stop under the low of that consolidation in, in all instances. Okay. Um, so, and that, that goes for a group too. So in other words, if you, if you bought, uh, I don't know, um, Halliburton, the oil service company, and in two weeks later, you got another signal in Schlumberger, which is another oil service company. You wouldn't be taking that position until you had a break-even or better stop on the first position. Okay? So basically what, I mean, I, I think Vince Lombardi said in his book, offense sells tickets and defense wins Super Bowls. And I, keep that as your motto for trading because I've, I've been around long enough to see a lot of people a lot of what I call meteors, okay? Meteors are people that have these phenomenal track records for one, two, three, even four, five years, and then all of a sudden they explode. And they very rarely hang on to any of their money. And what you want to do is, is try to find fixed stars. Maybe they're not as high, maybe they're not as bright, but they're always in the sky, okay? You know, if you can build, people don't realize it, but if you can build money at a 20% annual rate after taxes, you're going to double your money every three and a half years. Over a 20-year life, you're going to be building substantial capital. 
If you can do 30%, it's even faster. If you can do above 30%, you're talking about doubling your money a little more than every two years. If that isn't fast enough for you, I, then you're really being unrealistic because that is as fast as any of the top managers in the world have ever been able to build capital. So, you know, a lot of times, you'll, a lot of strategies have phenomenal good years and phenomenal bad years. And the fact of the matter is that the, the, uh, the, the sort of the tortoise and the hare situation, if you can build capital consistently, avoid large drawdowns, over the long run, the compound interest on that is much better than the guy that's up 300% one year but down 30 or 40% the next, on and on and on again. And it's a lot easier to manage internally as well. Okay, uh, let's keep going. So basically, at the, other, the other rule that I want, how many people know if they were stopped out of absolutely everything in their portfolio, how much they would lose on a percentage basis right now? Okay, Don't go to sleep without knowing that. That's the most important question you have every single day. If I were stopped, how many people use stops on every position they take? Okay. I would, I would, you know, W.D. Gann said it best, always, always, always use protective stops. You've heard the phrase that there's, there's three most important things in real estate are location, location, location. The three most important things in trading are risk management, risk management, and then risk management. Okay? So always use protective stops. It's an insurance policy against a disaster. And if you want to have smooth, consistent performance, you should always have your stops in the market in every stock you own. I, I want to make sure if I'm stopped out of absolutely everything, trailing stops, original stops, etc., that I'm never risking more than somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. Yes? Do I ever hedge with options instead of pure stops? Occasionally, there are times when if you look at the option, you can actually get it for cheaper you can actually hedge the position for cheaper than the protective stop would cost you. In that situation, it's, it's economically viable to use options, but that's about the only time. All right, so we're going to show you a bunch of different techniques for uh, trying to build consistent gains in, no matter what the market environment. Before we do that, how many people here with some of their portfolio are adhering to something remotely close to a buy and hold strategy? Okay. Mutual funds, if you're buy and hold, you don't use stops on mutual funds, I would call that. Keep going. There you go. All right. If, you, if any of you raise your hand or if you've ever considered using a buy and hold strategy, tear out this page and tear at it every day for a look at it every day as much as you can for a several week period. Okay? Because this is what the market has done since the 1960s and what I want people to see is that if you held the S&P which are usually the strongest set of stocks in a negative environment after 13 years you were down 62 percent in inflation adjusted terms if you bought any time between 1965 and 1969 okay now, how many people is it except, and it took you 
something like 23 years to get back to break even. How many people is that acceptable performance for? Okay, so if that's not acceptable performance, and that's the, the historical performance of buy and hold with the S&P, then buy and hold is not a strategy should, you should be utilizing. Okay, so we go into this ad nauseum. Uh, what the one thing, you know, after 19, if you bought stocks in 1929, it took you 37 years to get back to break even, another secular high. And what people don't realize is in after inflation terms, if you bought stocks in 1965, you didn't beat the guy that just bought risk-free T-bills every year until 1995, 30 years and you went through a 62% drawdown. Yes? Warren Buffett is largely a buy and hold strategy and Warren Buffett had an over 50% drawdown. All right. Uh, so we go through this concept ad nauseum and the, that chart just shows you that if, if you held the S&P for 10 years, the average annual return, go back to that chart you had, average annual return has fluctuated between about 20% and about negative 7% for holding this S&P over a 10-year period, okay? What I, I, two things I want people to see is that there's a long period from 1977 till about 83 when if you held the S&P for 10 years, you had negative returns. And two, I want people to see that Basically, this has, since 1900, this chart has fluctuated between just under zero and somewhere around 18 to 20 percent. And last year, we, the market was up about 19 percent on an annual basis over a 10-year period. So it got up to a level where normally the returns of the S&P start to turn down. And the next chart just shows that it takes, after the average bear market, it takes seven years to get back to break even, not counting inflation, and has taken as long as 25 years to get back to break even. Okay, uh, the next section we're going to go through pretty quickly. But basically, this is the sort of the benchmark performance of the S&P. It shows that the market is up on average 65% of the time. In other words, in 65% of the years since World War II, the market was up. Um, and the worst drawdown was 54%. And the average annual gain is something in the 12% range. Now we use a number of different, because that performance is unacceptable, we use a number of different tools to try to improve the performance of investing in the market. And this one that we're going to go through really quickly simply looks at the liquidity cycle and the correlation between stocks and bonds. Keep going. Let's get to the bond chart. Okay, one thing I want you to see is that Basically, every major rally in the S&P 500 from 1953 through today has been preceded by a nice rally in the bond market. And about 90% of the declines of over 10% in the S&P have been preceded 
by a decline in the bond market. Go ahead to the next chart. Next chart just shows you from 73 to 95. And this is a chart I published in our monthly letter to clients to show why I expected a rally in 1995. And then the next chart, which they've cut up into three pages, just simply shows you that this works internationally as well as in the US. Basically, the countries that have the largest short-term interest rate cuts over the last year tend to correlate extremely highly with the countries that have the largest industrial production growth and their stocks are bid up to the highest price to cash ratios. So we've got a little system, keep going, got a little, keep going, little system that we come up with in our book and we apply internationally and this just shows you the performance of that system in the U.S. market is a way of adding value to, to buying the stock market in terms of timing, and it just is very simple, very basic. You only buy the S&P when it's above its 40-week moving average, and either the T-bill yield or the T-bond yield are below their 40-week moving average. So in other words, interest rates are heading down and the market is heading up. Very simple, and yet it substantially improves the performance of the market. Instead of being up 65% of all years, it's up 89% of all years, and it cuts the maximum drawdown from 54% to 9.8%. Substantial improvement. You've got every trade since 1944 in that system here. All right, I'm going to talk very briefly. How many people have either taken my, uh, one of my courses or my book and have heard my liquidity cycle spiel before? Okay. Almost everybody's heard it, so I'm just going to do it extremely briefly. The bottom line is that a lot of the demand that comes into the marketplace comes from an artificial stimulus from newly created money supply in a fractional reserve banking system. And if you follow the flow of that new money, it, it tells you where you are in the liquidity cycle and it has an effect on different instruments all the way along the curve. And the problem is that the economy and everybody operating in it cannot differentiate between real supply and demand forces and real demand that comes from somebody foregoing something else in order to buy a good versus new money that's basically basically artificial demand doesn't really exist but also will be removed when inflationary pressures increase and so that allows the economy to build over capacity to compete too much for resources and to expect more demand down the road than will really exist. That creates this boom-bust cycle that we call the Austrian interpretation of liquidity cycle. And basically the money flows from the central bank that lowers the discount rate and creates a steep yield curve. So if you have yield curve is a difference between the short-term interest rate and the long-term interest rate. So if the discount rate drops to 4%, the long bond rate is 8%, that means that every bank in existence can go to the Fed and borrow to the full capacity of their reserves at 4% and 
and go ahead and loan risk-free to the bond market at 8% and pocket that nice 4% in between. So they have a huge incentive to do that when the yield curve is steep. So therefore, when the yield curve is steep, the Fed has their, their foot on the gas pedal and they're increasing the money supply quickly. The money flows from the discount rate window to the banks. The banks don't want to invest in any type of, of company or any type of loans because at this point in time the economy is weak, asset values are falling, they're concerned about losing their assets, so they loan to the bond market. The money flows from the central bank to the banks to the bond market. As interest rates begin to decline, bond investors see lower yields, they start to look at stocks as an alternative, they, um, the value of a the theoretical value of a firm goes up and so you start to see a portfolio shift out of the bond market to the stock market and as the bond and the stock market rise all of a sudden companies now face lower costs for expansion if they want to borrow and they can float secondary offerings and IPOs and raise money in the stock market and that means that they have they're able to access that new money and put it into the economy so the idea here is that the money flows from the banks to the bond market, to the stock market, and then to the real economy. And that's why the, the stock market tends to be an excellent predictor of the economy. It's not that stock investors are magically omniscient people who understand exactly what's going to happen to the economy six to 18 months down the road. It's that the liquidity that will eventually hit the economy and cause the boom to happen hits the stock market first, okay? And so you can see the cycle here. Mark? Yes? I've heard everybody's asking this question, where do you think we are now in the liquidity cycle, and what okay. are the implications of the stock market? Okay, so, so right now we're, the Fed is trying to engineer uh, a soft landing, if you can go back to the liquidity cycle thing. Fed's trying to engineer a soft landing, which is sort of a stretched out version of this. So what they're trying to do is, is raise interest rates enough to slow the economy enough so that inflationary pressures recede, and then hopefully they can step on the gas pedal again fast enough so that we won't go into a recession, but we'll just go into a slower growth period. Now, whether they can do this or not, I don't know. Um, Greenspan's been phenomenal at, at uh, keeping things on keel during his term but eventually that the money that has been flowing primarily into financial markets is going to hit the real economy and we're going to go through a recessionary cycle. And I think if you listen to Greenspan himself, that's pretty much what he'll tell you too. So I would say that what we're, what we're seeing here is a test of whether we're going to have a soft landing and we're starting to see a lot of evidence of the economy slowing. The question is whether the Fed will be able to put the get, his put on the gas before we actually have a recession or whether he'll be able to do it when the economy just slows enough. Now, it looks like inflationary pressures have receded enough so that we, if we get into any kind of trouble, he'll be able to loosen some. Um, so that I would guess that the soft landing scenario is a higher likelihood right now. But if the stock market, if the NASDAQ falls below 3,000 and the Dow falls below 9,700, I would say I would probably bet the other way. Now, the one thing that's important, that's an excellent background sort of overview to have an idea of what the best reliability situations are in the stock market, but, but what I want to show you is that does not affect how I trade one bit.
Okay, so it's nice to go on Wall Street Week and say, well, the Dow's going to close at 13,332.7 this year and all that kind of stuff, but that doesn't make you money. And I, <clears throat> I don't want to be a good predictor. I want to be rich. Okay. All right, and so we're going to spend most of the time <clears throat> on what this chart illustrates, and that is how critical selection is versus timing. <clears throat> what this shows is we have two theoretical investors. One is Mr. Timing. Mr. Timing is able, through his incredible skills, to buy the exact low tick of the Dow Jones Industrial Average every time it moves up 5% or more. And every time the Dow Jones Industrial Average moves down 5% or more, he is able to sell short the exact high tick. Perfect timing. Now, Mr. Selection, all he does is at the beginning of the year, he puts out a chart of all the different sectors in the market, he throws a dart at them, and he just happens to pick the best sector of the year every year. And he invests 100% of his assets in that one sector. Now, the question is, who does better? Mr. Selection or Mr. Timing. And what I want you to see is over any period of time, Mr. Selection kicks Mr. Timing's butt. Now, what that tells you is that the lowest fruit, the area where you should be spending most of your time as an investor, is not in trying to pick the highs and lows of the market, but in trying to determine what sectors and what stocks to invest in. Okay, let's okay, so this is our criteria for up fuel, which, are, which gives us sort of a, an idea. What we want to look for is we want to look for what we're trying to do in our strategy is we're trying to find stocks that have up fuel or down fuel and also have the right pattern, technically, for us to buy or sell them short. Um, our up fuel, we're looking for uh, either consistent growth or turnaround growth, and consistent growth means that it has five-year annual growth rate of greater than 25% and three years of higher annual earnings. Turnaround growth means the last two quarterly earnings are up 70% or more over the same quarter year earlier. They also have strong quarterly earnings growth and earnings momentum, which means that this quarter and last quarter are up 25% or more over the year, same quarter year earlier. And earnings momentum means that either this quarter's earnings are higher than last quarter's or this quarter's earnings growth is higher than last quarter's. So how many of you get daily graphs or anything? Okay. If you look basically in the bottom section that talks about earnings, you'll see all those numbers. Um, at that price, yes. I mean, you know, Wanda or something like that would be better, but uh, it's a very expensive service. So Daily Grass is, is definitely the best service for that right now. I believe, theoretically, that tradingmarkets.com is going to have allow you to have access to that with its database that it's building, and I don't know exactly when that's going to be done. But at some point, hopefully, you'll be able to 
drop that daily graphs and just use trading markets. Um, now, one thing, it's, we also want it to be a leading earnings growth and leading relative strength stock. Um, it, people should realize that, you know, there's been a lot of studies testing stocks going back to the 1900s, and the number one variable for, for helping you distinguish which stocks are going to outperform is relative strength. In other words, how well a stock has done has a lot to do with how well it's going to do. Now, those are very similar to O'Neill criteria, but the area where we differ, a lot of the O'Neill stocks are stocks that outperform on the upside substantially. The problem is, is that when the market is weak, they also underperform. What I'm trying to do is find a list of stocks that outperforms both in an up market and is more defensive in a down market. And so to do that, I have to add some value constraints. So I'm trying to find stocks that are strong growth, strong relative strength stocks, but also are relatively undervalued for their growth. And that means that their PE generally is 50 to 70% of their last two quarter earnings growth rate or their long-term growth if it's not a turnaround stock, whichever is less. When you have a stock that's priced at a discount to its earnings growth potential, you have an area where you've got a lot of PE multiple expansion potential. And most of the gains that you get as a short-term trader, at least half if, it's more than, if you're holding a trade more than a year or more, come from multiple expansion. Now there's something we can add to the stock being relatively undervalued for its growth rate that will help us find stocks that are in a period of rapid multiple expansion, which is where most of your gains come from. And that is by looking at the institutional sponsorship. We want a stock ideally to have somewhere between zero and 35, but, I, but the ideal stock is something like six to 16% institutional sponsorship with the sponsorship in a rising trend. Typically what happens uh, with these stocks is that they're strong growth stocks. They start out as smaller mid-cap stocks. And as they have a consistent growth performance for a period of three or five years, they begin to hit more and more institutional radar screens in terms of their capitalization. And the institutions begin to accumulate them. Institutional accumulation correlates most highly with rapid multiple expansion than any other statistic in a stock. Yes? Yes, it does, but if you look at it over a, a period of time, you'll be able to. So if you get daily graphs, what I suggest is don't just get the daily graphs online, get the books, okay, too. That way, if you look at a stock and it looks really good, you can go back and look at it a month ago, three months ago, four months ago, six months ago, and see what's happening to institutional sponsorship. Okay? Yes? Yes. Um, not really. No. I mean, it's, it's a lot less, they're a lot less plentiful than they were in 1992, but um, you can find enough to fill a portfolio up. 
most of the time. And when you can't, it's usually a situation where you don't want to be in the market anyway. Yes? Also in daily graphs. Yeah. You can find that in Barron's. You can find that in a lot of different places. Okay. Now, if the stock is followed by a fundamental research group like Zacks, Value Line, or Lowry's, which is really a technical, but any of those big uh, institutions, which is actually probably happens about 30% of the time in these types of stocks, you want to, it to not have a performance ranking that's not in the top two. All right. And the other thing is that we want the stocks to exhibit what we call runaway characteristics. Um, runaway characteristics are, they, we've got a whole list of them, and they split it out into a zillion pages. Um, and if you look in our courses, it's probably a little better laid out. But basically, a good rule of thumb to start with is that you look for how many gaps, laps, and thrusts occurred in the move prior to a consolidation in that stock. All right. How many people know what gaps, laps, and thrusts are? How many people don't? Nobody, nobody, okay, good. So a gap up is when today's high is above the, today's low is above the high of the prior day. So if you look at a bar chart, it looks like there's a gap in prices. There's most, most bars overlay with prior bars, but this one is, is above the whole bar of the prior day. Okay, a lap is when today's a lap up is when today's low is above yesterday's close. So in other words, prices gapped up on the open, but they didn't gap up so much that they're above yesterday's highs. And a thrust, which is probably the one that you're going to see most often, is a large range day with high volume where the close is in the top third of the range. Yes? Why is, why is it the close versus the low? Right. Well, because basically a lap is actually a gap. It's just that it's difficult to see on the chart. There's a, a, a gap is simply an area of trading uh, an area of price where no trading occurred, okay? And so if you close at 10 and you open the next day at 11 and that's your low, there's a gap, okay? Now, it doesn't matter what yesterday's high was. There's still a gap, okay? So that's what you're looking for. You're looking for some, some trading, some price where trading didn't occur. Yeah? If, it, if, there's, if the low of today is at or below the close of yesterday, it's not a lap, okay? So it's, it, it basically what happens with a lap is you have a gap from the close to the next day's open, and if that stays in existence to the next day's close, then you have a lap up, okay? All right. So as you get more proficient at looking at, and I call those, I call a breakout on a gap, lap, or a thrust a TBBLBG, which everybody gets confused about. It, TB stands for thrust breakout, 
BL stands for brake lap, BG stands for brake gap. What that means is a consolidation was broken and on the day of the breakout you had either a thrust, a lap, or a gap up. Now as you get more proficient at looking, finding gaps, laps, and thrusts and looking for runaway characteristics, come back to this and you can start to see a lot of these patterns develop in really strong trends. The idea here is um, is to try to, to do to the market what J. Paul Getty said was his most important rule on how to get rich in oil. J. Paul Getty's most important rule for finding oil was this, go where the oil is. And that meant if people were finding, if wildcatters were finding oil in a remote part of Texas and you were in Oklahoma, move. And J. Paul Getty, people don't know this, but J. Paul Getty lived out of a pickup truck going from well to well until he had accumulated more than $10 million, which today is probably the equivalent of $100 million. So what I try to do in the market is go where the oil is, and I believe the oil in the market is where runaway trends are. All right. How many people are familiar with our entry methodology, the flag and the cup and handle breakouts? How many people are not? Okay. So if you look at the next page, we've got a, an example of a flag pattern. Keep going. Keep going. Um, and a flag pattern is simply where a stock has a sharp run up, consoli consolidates for four weeks or more in a tight pattern that does not retrace 33% of the prior move and then breaks out to the upside. On all breakouts, whether it is a flag or whether it's a cup and handle, you want the breakout to be on a TBBLBG and you want the breakout to be on high volume. Is there anybody that's not familiar with cup and handle patterns? Yes. At least four weeks. And a cup and handles, you'd probably want to be a little like five plus. Yes? Um, O'Neill says seven weeks or more. I, 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 I don't find any difference between a five week and a seven week statistically, so I go ahead and use them. But, you know, every time he says something like that, I go back and retest my research. And if I find what he says is right, then I use it. And if I don't, then I don't. Yeah, any, some other question? No. All right. So we, so the two ones, I mean, in, in a really strong bull market, we'll use this other pattern that you've got there on this two simple patterns page, if you can keep going and get there. Um, and that's a, that's a retracement pattern. But in this environment, really the environment for the last several years, we've only used breakout patterns. Only when you're very confident of the trend and it's a very strong trend would you use a reaction pattern. And we've got a checklist that we use. It's a little different than O'Neill's that we find works for cup and handles there. Um, we've got a, a list of how to uh, take profits and exit positions for both shorts and longs. We've got some examples um, from a long time ago and from this year in KEI, cup and handle that we took in the trading markets. Dot com column. 
We've got our, our down fuel criteria, which is uh, criteria for finding short sales. And it's basically very similar to the mirror image of our up fuel criteria. We're looking for stocks that either have sharply decelerating earnings growth or declining earnings. Their relative strength and earnings per share is below 50. Um, they have runaway characteristics on the downside prior to their consolidations. And they're breaking down from either a flag or a cup and handle in reverse on a TBBLBG and relatively high volume. Very much as if you get confused, people, I don't know. How many people have sold short here? Okay, how many people have it? Okay. It, I, I, it's always amazing to me, but it, the only difference between selling short and buying long is that when you get on the phone, you say sell versus buy. Okay? You, you, it, it, and if you get confused about whether it's a cup and handle or a flag on the downside, just flip the chart over. It looks like you'd want to buy it when it's flipped over. You're right to sell it short. 